Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, welcome back to another Frank Davis, John Serma, Ogletree Deacons Workplace Health and Safety Practice Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about how, Frank, remind me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there a movie with something called Hal? Is that uh, what we're yes. talking about today? We're not, but you are referencing the 1968 Stanley Kubrick adaptation of Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 uh, Space Odyssey. I was born in 68, so I didn't see the movie when it came out originally, but it certainly left an impression on me uh, at an early age. It's the whole reason that I thought I wanted to be an astronaut, at least till the end. The animated voice or the um, automated voice in that was the HAL 9000. Uh, and I, before we started today, I looked it up because I was curious about the origins of HAL. Interestingly, HAL came from IBM. When Clark wrote the book, he just took IBM and moved all the letters back one to get H-A-L. So that was the origin of HAL. Kind of interesting. However, that's a completely different topic than the one we're discussing today because... As you know, uh, this podcast is less about movies and more about the Occupational Safety and Health Act, unfortunately. I enjoy movies quite a lot, as you know. Yeah, and I even heard that you were recently interviewed by Variety Magazine, but that's something to talk about (laughs) on another day. You tease me about that every time we talk. I I was proud of that experience. I learned a lot, and and, uh, we we can talk about some of the, the lessons that we can apply to the Osh case uh, at a later time. That works for me. We'll do it. We'll do a podcast for the folks that are maybe scratching their heads, wondering how we went from Hal to Alec Baldwin, and we'll deal with that a different day. So, Frank, first of all, from time to time, employers go through inspections, and the inspection basically comes to an end, and OSHA decides not to cite the employer but they issue a HAL to the employer and say, could you explain to our audience what a HAL is? It's a hazard alert letter. And it's a significant letter because OSHA issues a hazard alert letter when they feel like there's not a good basis currently to cite an employer. And in order to put that in context, I think we need to talk a little bit about one of the elements that OSHA must show before they issue a citation is that there's a a standard that the employer or the employer's industry should know and adhere to. And as everybody knows, there's the general duty clause under the OSH Act, the 5A1, and there's also the specific portion of the OSH Act, the Section 5A2, that provides for regulations. As a health and safety expert, everybody's seen all the regulations that are included for each of the industries covered by OSHA. But under a 5A1, that's a general duty clause requiring an employer to provide a safe workplace for its employees. If OSHA is going to cite under that general duty clause 
under the 5A1 general duty clause, OSHA must show that there's an industry standard or uh, an expectation that's generally recognized and known to the employer and or the employer's industry before they can issue that citation. And one of the national organizations like ANSI, A-N-S-I, or or NFPA, or any of the other organizations that set forth some of these standard expectations for the industry, then OSHA might issue a hazard alert letter putting the employer on notice of what OSHA expects the employer to do with regard to safety in its workplace. And Frank, I've seen a number of these over the years issued to different employers in in different circumstances. And, you know, the reaction from the client typically is is one of, I don't know if I want to say bewilderment, but but they're a little bit confused by it. And, and, you know, sometimes they get kind of really, really freaked out by it. And sometimes they just kind of shrug their shoulders and kind of don't think a whole lot about it. Um, in the context of the OSHA inspection and kind of the, the OSHA inspection history and, 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 you know, kind of how the how can impact an employer, what are the ranges of things that can happen as a result of the issuance of the how? Let me speak to your first point first, uh, that employer reactions vary exactly as you suggest. Uh, One set of employers may react very, let's say, energetically to receiving a hazard alert letter, and others may blow it off. Because these hazard alert letters, as you well know, start out with, all right, we've finished our inspection of your workplace. We don't find anything to cite you for today, uh, and we're not going to cite you today but we did find deficiencies in your workplace. And then they give a grocery list of deficiencies. Uh, And at the end of it, OSHA says, please write us a letter. Please respond to this hazard alert letter telling us how you've complied or corrected your work environment to address these issues we've raised. And through that process, they're getting at least some tacit uh, tacit agreement from the employer that these are uh, now recognized hazards that the employers addressed and must uh, maintain a safety program to continue to address over time. And once they've got that in place, that they've got the employer recognizing the hazard, once that hazard's recognized, then OSHA on a subsequent inspection will have better grounds to come back and say, look, there is a recognized hazard by this employer. And this this employer, by recognizing this hazard, uh, had a duty under the general duty clause, the 5A1 general duty clause, to uh, maintain a workplace that was free of these recognized hazards. And so going back to the initial question about employer response, uh, this is a response. Responding to this hazard alert letter is a response that merits that energetic response and a, and a very thoughtful reply uh, as to as to what OSHA is requesting. Does OSHA have the authority to basically do a follow up inspection based on the issuance of a hazard alert letter and an employer's either response or lack of a response? Well, OSHA includes in its alert letters, its hazard alert letters, that it 
it, it may uh, come back and verify an employer's response. Uh, I, I, I would liken it to the RRI letter that we discussed uh, in a previous podcast uh, where uh, OSHA sends this RRI letter and asks an employer to respond. And, and if an employer doesn't respond, then that can lead to an inspection based on the, the original basis for the complaint. Uh, or if the employer responds with, with a, an abatement, uh, an alleged abatement, then OSHA can come back and conduct an inspection based on what the employer said it did to abate. And that's an abatement inspection. It's a follow-up inspection. And, and OSHA can come back to conduct an inspection based on uh, abatement verification. So depending on the response in that hazard alert letter, OSHA may be able to come back out and conduct what it would call an abatement inspection. Uh, alternatively, OSHA may be able to come back out if the employer doesn't respond to the hazard alert letter and further its investigation, if it still has time left on its six-month statute limitations from the original complaint. So, Frank, kind of going to, to that answer and your prior answer, you know, you, you alluded to, you know, essentially the how outlining or advising the employer of an industry standard or expectation for the industry. There may not be a specific industry standard, right? Because if there was a specific industry standard already, then there may not be a need for that hazard alert letter, right? So if, for instance, there was an industry, an industry standard requiring bulletproof glass around every gas station attendant, uh, then OSHA wouldn't have to issue a hazard alert letter saying that we think you should have bulletproof glass around every gas station attendant. Okay, fair enough. And, and But they are essentially, and I say they, OSHA is essentially using the hazard alert letter to put the employer on notice of what OSHA thinks the industry standard is or should be. Is that a fair summary? That is what I believe. I think that's a fair summary of what I believe because OSHA is unable to point to another standard from NIOSH, ANSI, NFPA, or whatever industry, uh, whatever safety industry uh, uh, publication. And therefore, they they try to create uh, their, their own expectation, uh, hoping that the employer will respond and agree that they recognize that as a hazard that they're addressing. And that was where I was ultimately going with this line of questioning. Does the employer have the ability to challenge OSHA's opinion of what the standard applicable to that employer's industry is. The employer does have the ability to respond to a hazard alert letter and to specifically say, look, we don't agree that is a, a hazard that's properly addressed in, in the manner that you specify in your letter. I'll go with the bulletproof glass again. So if an employer were to receive, for instance, a hazard uh, alert letter that says, we think you need bulletproof glass around every every uh, gas station attendant uh, at, at your facility uh, and the employer doesn't agree that that is an, uh, an, uh, an appropriate measure, then the employer may consider responding to that hazard alert letter and, and expressing their disagreement in order to avoid uh, OSHA being able to establish that trail of an employer-recognized abatement. 
is essentially responding to the hazard alert letter and objecting to OSHA's perception of what the industry standard is that, for lack of a better word, dispositive of the issue? And does that put the, the issue to rest in terms of the employer being subject to OSHA's interpretation of what the industry standard should be or what that employer should be doing to keep its workplace safe and healthful? Not entirely. It doesn't, it doesn't put the issue to, to rest entirely, but it does weaken the argument that the, that, that employer has recognized that abatement for that specific hazard. Uh, OSHA would still be able to come in and establish that others in the industry have so, for instance, if they're, you've seen their hazard alert uh, webpage where they list a number of hazard alert letters that they've issued over time, and it's a it's a grocery list of of uh, of items uh, going back uh, decades in time. Well, two decades in time as I look at it now, but anything from specific diesel exhaust uh, all the way to um, to temporary workers and recommended practices. It's, those are things that aren't necessarily covered by a specific standard, but then they outline this expectation of industry and they'll point to those uh, alerts as putting the employer on notice of what's expected. And, and then as more employers uh, begin to follow uh, these alerts and these expectations, it builds a better case for OSHA to say, see, look, it's a standard that's recognized by the industry and the abatement is recognized by the industry. Therefore, by failing to do so, you're violating Section 5A1, the general duty clause, because you're not following, you, the employer, are not following the expectations of the industry. Frank, you and I have both been doing this long enough that both seen clients get a number of these over the years. And, and, you know, on one hand, you know, kind of as we talked about earlier, there, there can be kind of a sigh of relief. On the other hand, you know, there, there can be kind of, you know, the, the, the frantic, we need to make sure that OSHA doesn't understand that this is the industry standard that we should be expected to live to and or that, you know, what, what OSHA is requesting isn't the industry standard. Uh, I've seen a number of hazard alert letters that, quite frankly, demonstrate that OSHA just doesn't really understand my client's industry. I'm assuming you've had the same type of experience. And, and if an employer receives one where, you know, it, it's it's apparent that, that, you know, you've got some sort of very niche type industry, the one that I'm thinking about was hydrostatic testing of pressure vessels. And, you know, they clearly didn't understand the technology. They clearly didn't understand the industry. And so we spent a fair amount of time kind of explaining the industry, explaining the safeguards that the industry put in place, explaining, you know, that we were essentially, you know, abiding by kind of the highest and greatest industry standards relating to this particular industry. Some of my clients have received these. They kind of say, well, that's not what the industry does. And they just kind of shrug their shoulders and want to throw it in the wastebasket. What's your normal response when it's clear that what OSHA is talking about doesn't apply to that industry? My normal response is to respond and not just let the letter set, especially if the client has a, a strong feeling that the uh, alleged hazard and alleged abatement is inappropriate for the industry. Look, I, I think collectively, candidly, I think collectively 
OSHA, if you're using the they for everybody working for the administration, I think collectively they probably have a, across the country uh, enough experience to understand just about every industry. But the issue that we run into is individually at individual area offices, the folks that are making these decisions are relatively low-level managers. So it's not a they so much as an individual, uh, in my experience. And I, and while that individual may be relying on more of a global knowledge, it's it's not a collective decision that evidences great experience in that specific industry. It's to in in my experience, the times I've seen these these hazard alert letters, it's been driven primarily by an individual who really lacked that requisite understanding of the industry. And that's, to me, the biggest problem. You, you see the published hazard alert letters on OSHA's website. I have to assume that those published letters have gone through more scrutiny, more scrutiny and are based more on a, a collective understanding, a national collective understanding by OSHA of the industry. Uh, I would tend to give those a little more weight than the one that an individual employer may receive from an assistant manager at one of the local area offices. I tend to look at those with a lot more scrutiny. And, and I, I don't disagree with you in terms of the organization as a whole versus you know whether it's the assistant area director or the area director. But what I'm really kind of looking to try to get your opinion on it is how do you handle a hazard alert letter that comes back and, and clearly misses the mark and what are your recommendations to the client in terms of addressing those letters that miss the mark? So my typical response in, in this region, Region 6, Federal OSHA, is to address the specific allegations in the letter and do one of two things. If the abatement makes sense and, and it's feasible abatement, then uh, my inclination is to, sure, uh, we believe that will enhance the safety program and Therefore, we'll adopt it, and and here's what we've done. And then the exact opposite uh, for the ones that seem frivolous or not feasible or not even applicable, we typically respond that way and say and give the reasons why the abatement isn't appropriate for the alleged hazard. And sometimes the hazards that are, that are identified are not hazards that a client may be willing to recognize or because the client doesn't believe that hazard really exists. And sometimes that gleans directly from uh, that low-level manager's understanding of how that industry works. Is there any sort of financial or economic penalty tied to a HAL like there is with a citation? Well, not a direct penalty that is paid to the Department of Labor, but there's always the cost of abatement. And once the abatement's taken, there's always the risk of uh, future citations. If that recognized hazard that was recognized through uh, abatement that OSHA uh, sought the employer to use, then that does create exposure for future citations, including willful citations, since it's now a recognized hazard with a now recognized feasible abatement. And you now have a, a letter that OSHA has issued to that employer that essentially the employer can't turn their back on relative to having received notice of that expectation. That's exactly right. And, and talk about personalized service. 
alerting an employer to to an alleged hazard in the workplace. I find it interesting because oftentimes you'll hear employers go through an inspection and say, well, OSHA has been here three times and they never noticed or they never told us that was a problem. This is kind of the opposite of that. OSHA has gone through now and they've identified a specific problem and then given the employer a very specific explanation of what they see as a problem. And OSHA's letter also has a very clear expectation of what the employer needs to do in order to address it and to inform OSHA how it addressed that alleged problem or that alleged hazard. So just a couple more questions as we kind of draw to a close on this episode of this podcast. Question number one, from the standpoint of resolution of the dispute, so OSHA sends the how, they've alerted the employer to the hazard. The employer responds saying, now, we don't agree that those are either the appropriate industry standards or that we don't believe that those hazards exist in our workplace or whatever the response is. You know, kind of how does that get worked out in terms of the resolution? I mean, is it is it one letter, then another letter, and then it kind of dies? Or is there an ongoing process where that dispute can somehow be litigated out or, or somehow further hashed out? I've never seen it litigated out, but... Uh, I have seen where employers get into a letter writing exchange with OSHA. I haven't been part of one of those letter writing campaigns. I've always been more of the one and done type guy, but I I have seen where there can be protracted uh, communications regarding an issue. I'd be concerned about that uh, if there was protracted communications about it. It just helps OSHA build its case about a recognized hazard with a with a, a an abatement identifying abatement that would be feasible to address it. My second and last question on the topic Frank and 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 you know thank you for some really insightful thoughts on this. My second and last question is this from the standpoint of the deadline. So as a for instance, you know OSHA sends a letter, client receives it, has a deadline for a response to let OSHA know what's going on and what they're going to do about the hazard uh, of, say, a month from now. The employer agrees that this is a hazard, but it's something that's going to take some time to get hammered out. In in your experience, how do you recommend clients respond to that type of situation where, you know, they have every intention of responding, they have every intention of of making the the changes or alterations that OSHA is recommending, they just need more time than OSHA's allowed. Like I've said in other podcasts, my general feeling is to try to maintain a, a cordial relationship with their area office and to, if OSHA is working with them, to try to work with OSHA and just communicating, say, look, we see that hazard and we believe we can implement the abatement. Uh, we don't believe we can implement this abatement by the date you specify in the hazard alert letter. Uh, so um, we're, we're working on it, and uh, we'll, we'll let you know when we get it fully abated. Depending on the hazard, uh, the, you know, sometimes we consider whether we want to uh, propose an interim abatement, some other interim rule like a, or some other interim measure like a, an administrative rule, um, tape on a floor to keep people away from it, putting up the fencing that you put around a, a swimming pool when when uh, rebuilding a fence and so on and so forth. Uh, but generally, uh, 
if there is a hazard that is identified and, and we're trying to address it by a certain date, but we can't get it done by then, then my general inclination is to just communicate with OSHA. Well, Frank, I'm glad you didn't call it the cement pond. You're referring to the swimming pool. <laughs> As always, it's been a pleasure. And um, to our audience, uh, we hope that you found some value out of this and uh, hope that you join us next time. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.